I'm all out of sorts today just because the routine is different. Good morning. I'm not preaching today. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs> with a little too much vim and vigor. No, I'm just kidding. How about them Trojans? We beat Notre Dame. Yes. Yeah, fight on. We made it to the Pac-12 championship for a rematch with the dreaded Utes of Utah. Revenge shall be sweet. Only it's during the tree lighting. You know that, right? The, the lovely Pac-12 schedules games their championships on a Friday night when no one can watch. That's their whatever. But thanks to the DeWitts, for, I, we got great tickets. I didn't know you could go to the Coliseum and your nose not bleed. You can get low enough, you can actually see the game. And we got on the field and smelled the grass afterwards. It was amazing. We had fun. Jeremy and I did. So, um, and then there's this. I sent Alex, Pastor Alex in Uganda, an email this week. You know, I'm assuming they're rooting for the Commonwealth during the World Cup. Since there's no team from Uganda. And we played England this week to a draw, right? Oh, oh my gosh. So I said, how about that team from the USA? We fought for a tie with England. Go USA. His reply, this is classic. Yeah, he said, indeed, this is remarkable. <laughs> Hi, my brother. So far, this achievement is worth celebrating. At least there is a glimmer of hope for the, a next stage qualification. It is apparent the US football team has gained some mileage in their performance. Yeah, soon and very soon. Our prayer is that they win the next opponent, which is a game, which game is going to be both socially and politically a big game. We are with you. Have a good Sunday worship service. Greetings to all. You know, we play Iran on Tuesday at 10 or 11 in the morning, I think. So <laughs> I just thought that was, that was, that was funny. <laughs> So now, what I'm supposed to do this morning is introduce the new Christmas series. We are transitioning and we're moving from 40 days of uh, true religion, and we turn the corner today uh, to begin to, to look at the holiday of Christmas. And so we're excited about that. This year, the series is called The Lights Before Christmas, because you know the story outside. We got tons of lights. There are going to be tons of lights in here. We're going to decorate the place out this week. And so this, this series, we decided to explore some Old Testament passages, which just hint, sometimes barely, but they hint of the coming of the Messiah. And so Matthew and Luke really are timeless texts to explore in December, but there are other passages just begging to be explored this time of year. And so we're going to draw out and look at some texts and some themes and some nuances that we can often neglect. So if you have your Bibles, you can open. We're going to start today in Exodus um, 16. Some small glimmers of light, like stars in the, that, that get overshadowed by the bigger ones. And so we're going to look at those texts, mostly in Genesis and Exodus, in the next five weeks. We do have an Advent um, devotional available. So it's all ready to go that a lot of you have participated in. I encourage you to pick one up on your way out. It starts, when's December 1st? Thursday, I believe. Am I right? Yep, I'm, we're just going to say I'm right. Whatever, December 1st it starts. If you're watching online, if you email me, we'll mail you a copy if you can't get by the office this week because we want everybody to have that. Uh, Jim at pccpv.org. You can, Andrew or Bruce, just 
any of our names with the at pccpv.org. Don't send it to Linda. She's out this week, so you won't get it in time. So um, get that, and uh, we are ready to launch this journey. If you've got your Bibles, Exodus 16. All right, so I actually, I, I, I was thinking to myself, that would be pretty nice if I could just like stick my hand up wherever I went and bread would just come flying in from the heavens. If I was just like, Caleb, like hit me, and then all of you just freaked out right there, but I'm just kidding. Uh, I wouldn't do that to poor Pastor Jim, uh, start tossing bread in here. But if you turned your Bibles to Exodus 16, you probably noticed right away uh, what our first passage is. Um, and, and actually, we're going to do something interesting today as we dive into the lights before Christmas. Uh, by the way, my name's Andrew. I am the student ministry pastor. We'll kick things off. Um, but today, we're looking at the lights before Christmas, and we're going to actually look at two passages um, because we're going to look at the light that happens before Christmas, and then, in a sense, we're going to look at the, uh, the light more clearly revealed that happens after Christmas, and they kind of point back and forth to each other. And so we're going to be in Exodus 16, but if you have, like, your connect or something and you want to hold a place, we're also going to be in John 6. We're going to kind of see the two play off each other. But these two passages, um, they surround food. And I would almost argue they might be the two most famous food stories uh, in the Bible. And I think this is so interesting because food is vital. Uh, food is vital. It's important not only um, to life, uh, but we, we depend on food to live, yes, but, but we also celebrate food. Right? We take all those fancy Instagram pictures of our food when we go somewhere fancy, um, or we celebrate with food. Uh, just a few days ago, we had a holiday where it, it's not only okay, but encouraged to overstuff yourself. We watch shows about food. I see everywhere I go, like the Great British Baking Show or, or the Gordon Ramsay, all that kind of stuff. We watch shows about food. We watch shows with food. We use it for community. Um, and occasionally, we can abuse it for therapy. Thinking like that ice cream pint right after a rough breakup. Is that all food can be, though? Can it be something more? Can it do something more? Are we taking it for granted? And I think what we're going to see today is that people were taking uh, the food in these stories for granted. And I'm wondering if we can uh, have the potential to be doing the same. So let's dive in. We're going to be in Exodus 16 to start things off. That's our beginning, our first passage we're going to look at. And in Exodus 16, uh, just a little context, you know where we are. Exodus 16, it kind of takes place after all the bits that we like make movies about and tell the children's stories about in Exodus. It's after all of that. They've already kind of exited Egypt. There's already been the plagues and the miracles and the staff into a snake. All that kind of stuff has happened. And now they're out of Egypt and they're in the desert. And they've been in the, the, the desert for just a little bit now. And as things have quieted down, uh, Israel's become grumpy. Things aren't, aren't, aren't as exciting anymore. And so now they're kind of grumpy. And, and look what happens. Exodus 16, and we're going to start in uh, verse 2. It says this, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Aaron and against Moses. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Kind of dramatic. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out to the desert to starve this entire assembly. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven, and the people are to go out each day, gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. Kind of goes on a little bit, but he's starting right there. He says, and then he goes, on the sixth day, they're going to prepare uh, what they bring in, and this is going to be twice as much. They're preparing for the Sabbath. It's the only day you bring in twice as much. Every other day, bring in just enough for that day. Moses and Aaron, they said to the Israelites, in the evening, you're going to know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see his glory because the Lord has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses said, you will know that it was the Lord you grumbled against. Or when he gives you meat uh, to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Like me, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? How does manna and quail and a dry, hot desert have anything to do with snow and candy canes and the elf movie? How do those come together? Where is the overlap? But what's happening here is, like I said, it's, it's a little light before Christmas. It, it's a glimmer of something that's to come. It's a foreshadowing of something of Jesus. And the interesting thing is, it's not exactly a foreshadow of his birth, but it's actually a much more foreshadow of him and something about him. And so it, it, it comes up a little bit later. It comes up in John 6, because in John 6, uh, the crowd brings up this story to Jesus, and he says, I feel like you guys didn't get the whole story. Let me, let me explain it a little bit to you. And so that's kind of where we're going to look at these two passages together. So if you have your Bibles and you want to flip to John 6, we're going to also look at that because these two are intertwined. They're stuck together. In, in order to see what's happening in Exodus more clearly, we also need to see what Jesus says in John 6 when the crowd brings this story up to him. John 6 uh, is probably the other most famous story about food in the Bible. It takes place right, well, it takes place right after that at least. Uh, uh, bread from heaven in a sense 2.0 Jesus feeds the 5,000 he feeds the 5,000 right he's got the five loaves he's got the two fish he feeds the 5,000 and right afterwards he kind of he kind of goes away takes a step back well when he kind of reappears all of a sudden there's this crowd again they've all followed him they've all come to see him and when they come and see him and when they're following him Jesus makes a very public observation to them and I think it's an observation they were not ready to hear and not wanting to hear. And so here's what that is. John 6, 26, we get this. Jesus answers them, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're looking for me not because of me, not because of what I did, but because I fed you. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do uh, to do the works God requires? It's kind of like a good Jew response, right? What, what do we need to do? It, it gave me a flashback to the Micah 6-8 kind of thing that we just looked at, right? The, the, the nation's in trouble, and they're like, okay, God, how can we pay our way out of this? Like, can we... Uh, what, what lambs do you need? What old river of oil, our firstborn son? They, they're trying to figure out the, like a shortcut to get themselves out of it. What can we do? What kind of works does God require? Jesus just answers them. The works of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask him, what sign will you give us that we might see and believe? 
all of a sudden they're, it's kind of weird, their, their tone changes. First they're like, yes, okay, what do we need to do? And then when he tells them, they're like, well, okay, hold on. I'm not so sure about that. What sign are you going to give us so we might believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. There's kind of like a, a, a reference back to this, and they're kind of saying like, hey, like the other prophets, they did this. Moses did this. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives eternal life. Sir, always give us this bread. It's a back and forth. They can't seem to make up their minds. Here's the last little bit, and then we'll kind of dive into what it is. Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. It's kind of a lot to take in right there. I understand. Two big passages. But you kind of need the two to understand what's going on. In one of them, you have Exodus 16. You have the Old Testament. Here's Israel. They just got out of Egypt. Um, they just witnessed all these amer- amazing things, miracles, plagues, crazy stuff, the, the Red Sea splitting in two. And then uh, they kind of get upset. And now you have a crowd who just witnessed another miracle. They, they want more of this bread. They're following Jesus along. And, and they seem to be missing something too. And so this kind of gets to what our big observation is that Jesus is saying. Here's our big observation if you're following along. He's saying, what's your observation? You missed it. You missed it. You missed the miracle. You missed what was going on. You missed the heart of it. You missed the miracle. You missed it when it was the, with the manna, and you missed it now. You had two chances. And so in both of those stories, I think we begin to wonder, well, what did they miss? What is Jesus talking about? They missed two things. Number one, if you're following along, is this. They missed the gift giver. They missed the gift giver. Uh, Jesus says quite clearly, he's, he's talking with the crowd and he, he's interacting with them and they say, well, what are you going to do for us? What kind of sign are you going to show us? You know, at least, and they don't say it directly, but they kind of hint, like, at least back in the day, like, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Like, at least that happened. Uh, what are you going to do to prove yourself? And Jesus reminds them, Wait, who, I'm sorry, who, who gave you bread? Who rained down manna? It wasn't Moses. Moses didn't do that. It was God. And as I began to think about the, the Christmas season, um, and we're, we're getting into it now, Thanksgiving's passed, you're finally allowed to play your Christmas music. Uh, congratulations, you don't have to wait any longer. Um, and we're getting in that season. What follows closely uh, along with the Christmas season, obviously, is presents right? You can't escape it. Presents follow along so closely. And there's this giving and receiving of presents. And one thing I, I love with presents is I, as I now get older, but when I think back, is this kind of like cat and mouse game that used to happen between like parents and kids. This feeling of like, I'm going to find my presents ahead of time. I'm going to figure out what it is ahead of time. Then there's like these different games where you like try to go find your presents or you find them wrapped under the tree and you'll like weigh it, you'll shake it, you'll look between the little cracks to try to figure out what it is. You're just like this game, you're trying to find your presents ahead of time. You want to know what you get. In my family though, we learned very quickly that the best way to kind of understand what you're getting for Christmas is to figure out who the gift giver is. When it comes to Christmas, perhaps the best way to show, you know, in, in a sense what to expect is figure out who is the gift giver. Now, my family, when I was a kid, I, the way I kind of figured this out is, is uh, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the presents. We kind of learned, don't, don't go right away to all the presents that are beautifully wrapped 
and have these, these amazing bows and ribbons and are sparkling, look for the ones that are covered in newspaper. Look for the ones that are kind of clumsily wrapped in newspaper. Those are the presents you want to open first because that was a clear sign of who they were from. Any present that was wrapped in newspaper was from my grandfather. And my grandfather was like the king of Christmas. He could not wrap to save his life, but he loved Christmas. It's actually a reminder. I need, to, I need to silence my phone on Christmas Day because the first thing he would do is he would wake up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and he would call everyone in his contact list until they answered uh, just to sing them jingle bells or something like that. <laughs> just to make sure they're up and ready. They're like, hey, it's, it's the day you got to get started. All right, it's Christmas. You can't wait. You can't sleep in. You got to beat Santa down there. He would also, when he would come over, especially for my little sister who is about 12 years younger than me, he would come dressed as Santa every Christmas just to make sure she had some of the joy and some of the love. And he would, one thing he would especially do for the younger kids is he would always get the most extravagant gifts. He would always kind of buy that like top of your Christmas list, the real reach that everyone's like, okay, you put that on there, but I don't know if that's going to be possible. He would buy that one. And so there was this thing within us where we would kind of avoid the, the neatly wrapped and the, and the beautiful ones, which were obviously also really nice and spoiled us, but we'd look for the ones covered in newspaper because that was a sign of who gave it to us. I think Jesus is saying in both these stories, you guys miss the gift giver. You miss the person who was giving you this gift. You miss the person who was reaching out to you. In Exodus, uh, well, actually, first, in, in John, they literally, in a sense, forget who it was that gave it to him. They're kind of trying to test Jesus, but they forget who first gave it to him. In Exodus, though, I think we see something, in a sense, that's even more relatable. In Exodus, they seem to forget the heart of the gift giver. They seem to forget who really God is. Take a look if you're in Exodus real quick. Exodus uh, 16, verse 3. I just love this little kind of snippet from it that just tells me it seems they're missing something. Because it says, The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Sometimes I just absolutely love and hate the drama of wandering Israel. Like, if you just really need, like, kind of a drama push, you don't need to go to, like, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. You don't need to go to Bravo. Just go to Exodus. You will see the immense passive-aggressive drama that you're desiring. It's in there. Israel is like this. If only you had just killed us in Egypt. Like, at least we had our in and out. Why did you bring us out here? And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, how, how, did, they, how did they get to this? Israel, have you, have you already forgotten what just happened? At this point in time, they've, they've only been out of Egypt for like maybe a month and a half. I think people think somewhere around 45 days. So it's like, okay, Israel, something like 45 days, two months ago, you were just in Egypt. You cried out to God to rescue you. You cried out to God to deliver you. And he did. And he didn't just kind of do it in like a quiet way. He did it in a really loud, obvious way. Sign after sign, miracle after miracle. Things you could not forget. They seem to have forgotten. Like God would do all that work, all that investment, just to kind of like give up on them. 
that's not who God is. And so they, 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 they've forgotten the gift giver in the sense that they've forgotten who he is. They've forgotten the heart of the gift giver. They've forgotten that, that he's remained faithful to them, even though they haven't remained faithful to him. They've forgotten that he's been their provider and he's been their deliverer. And so I think what you see happen in Exodus is God wants to remind them of this. Um, and I think it's so interesting because if you look at the Exodus passage, there's a, a kind of, in a sense, a verse that's easy to miss, but it's an instruction to the people of Israel of how they're supposed to collect the manna. And I think it's a very uh, specific and deliberate instruction. So in Exodus, there's this instruction that God says he wants them to go out and to collect the manna, but they're only supposed to collect enough for that day. They're not supposed to store it overnight, unless it's the Sabbath. That's the only other time. They're only supposed to go out and collect enough for just that day. And if they did it, if they stored it any other day besides the Sabbath, it would rot. And I began to wonder, kind of like, what, what is going on there? Why would they do that? That sounds, that sounds kind of annoying, like a hassle. Like, I can't just kind of store it up. I've got to go out every day. It sounds like hard work. But I think it's very specific. I think it's meant uh, to do something in Israel's hearts and minds. And one of the things I think it's supposed to do is I think it's supposed to remind them daily about who's providing for them. If you begin to think about it a little more, the, the, the act of actually physically going out and picking up manna, collecting the manna every single day reminds them. It's a tangible way for them to remember every single day who it is that is providing for them who it is that is with them. God has not abandoned them. God is close to them. He is intimately invested in them. And if they they forget that, they can see it right there on the ground every single day, a daily reminder, I'm with you. Secondly, I, I think by having to go out every day, they have to daily put their trust in God as well. They have to daily put their trust in God. By not being able to store up manna, they need God, literally, They need him. If he doesn't bring manna, they don't eat. And so there's a daily daily, uh, kind of act of putting their trust into God, uh, of putting their trust and saying, I know you're going to provide for me. I'm remembering who you are. I'm remembering that you've provided for me in the past, and I'm trusting that you're going to do it again. And so in this small instruction, I think there's actually a really powerful lesson for them, a really rich and powerful lesson that they're being told but again, we begin to wonder, how, how does that necessarily relate to Jesus and, and to, the, to what's coming? But it's a foreshadow. It's a foreshadow of, of what Jesus is doing. It's a callback because we're getting a bread from heaven 2.0 in the New Testament. You get a bread from heaven uh, 2.0. He's calling it back. Jesus is, is referencing this. And we're seeing, in a sense, uh, the manna even more fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus, in a sense, is also saying, hey, the, the same God from those stories is here, and he's with you, and he's reaching out to you. Let me show you how. Unfortunately, though, what we, I think we see in John, as well as Exodus, but even, though, even if the people were to get the gift giver, even if they were able to see that, they miss the second thing. The crowd in John specifically misses it. The second thing is this. They miss the gift. They miss the gift They miss the true thing that's going on. They miss what Jesus is really giving them. Jesus even says this, people are following him around, and he says, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
They're following the wrong gift. They're following something that's worse. They're following Jesus around because they ate. They ate food. That's what they want. And I can actually uh, understand that a little bit because every, uh, every other Thursday, I go to Peninsula High School and I go with a club called FCA, which is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, and we go and we kind of meet um, on campus with kids. And one of the things that we always do is we bring free pizza uh, for everyone in the club. And so uh, usually what happens is when I get there, uh, I will walk th- into the office and through the entire school with about six to seven boxes of pizza in my arm. So I'm walking through a high school, uh, through the main quad, through classes, through hallways with about seven pizzas in my arms. Everyone's eyes follow me. (laughs) Sometimes people's bodies also follow me. There's something about it. They're following the food. And Jesus is saying, in a sense, the same thing, right? You're like this high schooler who's seen the box of pizza. You're just following me for the food. Truth be told, one of the reasons we bring the pizza is for that, though, so it's a little different. <laughs> I, we want people to follow us. But he's saying, you got, you got to take the next step. You're following me just for the food. They were excited about that, but they were missing the deeper meaning. And I think what was happening was they were calling Jesus Lord, but they were doing it with a stipulation. They were doing it with a condition. They're saying, Jesus, yeah, you're, you're Lord, you're the Messiah. As long as you follow this, or as long as you look like this, They worshipped the bread giver, and that was the Lord they desired. They came to the conclusion that, that, that for them, the Messiah was supposed to be and look like something, and at this current moment, Jesus looked like it. But they also kind of made it clear that if this condition or if this stipulation wasn't met, they are gone. And I think the really sad thing is uh, they were kind of making it clear that they would move on and move on, many of them do. If you're even just in John 6 and you just like scroll your eyes a little bit lower to like verse 60, you'll see a title. And the title there says something like, uh, many of the disciples desert Jesus, or many of the disciples abandon Jesus. It's the story right after this. So they're saying, we'll call you Lord, but it's with a condition. And if that condition's not met, we're moving on. And a lot of them move on. And I think that happens because they missed the gift. They missed what was really going on. See, physical bread was not the gift. Jesus wasn't there just to, to hand out the pizza. He wasn't there just to, 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 to pull out the, to the gift. Um, like there and like in Exodus 16, it points to the gift. It points to the real gift. It's kind of like a gift that leads to something bigger. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. That's how he closes things off. You come, you follow me just because I, I filled your your stomach in a sense. But you're, you're, you're going after food that's going to spoil. I'm the bread of life. Follow after something that won't go bad. Whoever eats of it will not be hungry or thirsty again. And here is where I think we really begin to see the lights before Christmas play out in Jesus. Here's where I think we really begin to see the connection with the bread that's taking place, uh, the manna really, that's taking place in Exodus 16, and now we're now seeing it in Jesus saying, I'm the bread. Here's just a few quick connections for you. When it comes to the bread in, in Exodus and in Jesus, who's doing the work? Who's doing the work? Because I think it, it, you see in Exodus, it's not Israel. They're not, they're, God didn't rain down seeds and he's like, okay, go plant them and cultivate them and then in a couple of months harvest them and then 
use that. No. Go out and you'll find it. Who's doing the work? The bread of life came down also from heaven for us. There's also this connection of the, the, the never be hungry again. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, you'll never be hungry again. I actually think you see this uh, fulfill what happened with the manna in Exodus as well because uh, in Exodus there's this um, uh, part that takes place where uh, when the manna comes down, people go out and they collect it. And some people, it says, collect a lot and some people collect a little. So they go out and some people gather like as much as they can and some people gather just a little bit. Um, but here's what happens. It says the Israelites did as they were told. Some of them gathered much, some a little. When they measured it by an omer, just a measuring thing, uh, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. When they gathered, either of those, it was a lot or even if it was a little, they had exactly what they needed. Uh, the manna completely satisfied the people's need. So Jesus is saying, you're, you're never going to be hungry again. You're never going to be thirsty again. The spread of life, is, it, it completely satisfies your need. Unfortunately, people always jump again to the food, but he's saying it's something deeper. Completely satisfies your need. It's a foreshadow. And then I, I think the response is kind of interesting as well, this response to the bread. Um, because again, uh, when, when they were going down, they're supposed to collect it every day. Um, they weren't supposed to store it up. They're supposed to trust that God would provide again. And so I think kind of just like the, the provision of manna took a level of trust from Israel, I think Jesus is saying, this new bread is taking a level of trust from you. They say, what do we need to do? What work what we must do? Jesus says, trust in me. And then finally, I think the real gift keeps you. They miss the gift, right? They, they follow this gift that, that doesn't fulfill them. They follow it with a condition. And because they follow the wrong gift, because they open the wrong gift, because they call Jesus Lord, but they add a condition to it, a lot of them leave. And Jesus responds to a lot of them leaving by turning back to the disciples and he says, uh, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who shall we go to? You have the words of eternal life. I like Peter's words. What else are we going to do? Who else could we go to? I think Peter is glimpsing this, the same need that Israel was called to have with the manna. We're fully dependent on you, Jesus. Where else could we go? There's nothing else that can measure up. You have the words of eternal life. Where else could Israel go? They're in the middle of a desert. Bread was just appearing. Who else could they trust in? How do we respond like Peter, though? How do we respond like him rather than the crowd or rather than uh, Israel, who we see time and time again, still misses the point? How do we respond like that? Two quick points for you. Number one is this. Cherish the gift giver. We need to cherish the gift giver. The gift giver matters. The one who is giving the gift matters. Uh, some of us in this Christmas season will come and, and you will spoil your loved ones. Or, like me, you will be spoiled by your loved ones. Love Christmas. Still the one who receives, even as an adult. It's great. 
I'm going to be spoiled. But the truth of the matter is, right, God is the greatest gift giver. And so it's really cliche to say at Christmas, but I think it's cliche for a reason. We're supposed to remember and cherish the gift giver. We're supposed to remember the OG gift giver, the original gift giver uh, who gave us something better. That's kind of what the whole point of these gifts are. And so maybe as we give and as we receive today, or, well, not today, but with Christmas, there's an element of, of remembering the gift that this is supposed to represent. And in doing so, we can cherish the gift giver. Unlike the crowd in John 6, we, we remember who it came from. And unlike uh, Israel uh, in the desert, we can remember and cherish who he is. Right? Not, don't forget in a moment's notice when, when things are hard or when things slow down, forget who God is. Cherish him, remember him. And then the second thing is this. We open up the right gift. It's kind of an important one. You know, open the right gift. Uh, the people that, that were following Jesus in, in John 6, uh, they wanted something worse. They wanted something less. And when, when Jesus said, uh, that's not the gift I'm giving, I'm giving you something better, they didn't want it. They didn't open it. They left. So you open up the right gift. And I think one of the things we can do in doing that is asking, how can we check our hearts? How can we check our hearts? Here's why. I, I thought the crowd that was following Jesus had a fundamental misunderstanding of who he was. They had a fundamental misunderstanding of who he was. They were celebrating the bread giver. They were celebrating having a full stomach, going to bed with a full stomach. It was, they were happy and jolly like me after Thanksgiving. Right? They're taking their turkey nap and they're happy. But they had a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And I think it's not just that, but their misunderstanding actually exposed their heart. Their misunderstanding actually just exposed their heart, what there was really going on deep inside. Because they followed Jesus not because of who he was. Jesus even says that. They follow him because of what they can get out of him. They're following Jesus for what they can get out of him rather than following him because of what he is. And the sad reality is that did not go away in John 7. That didn't go away when the crowd disappeared. Throughout time, we've seen people uh, uh, who follow Jesus for what they can get out of him. We feel it in ourselves sometimes. What can I get out? Call Jesus Lord, but they had a condition. Right? They're using Jesus for what they can get out of him. Uh, for them, was it, was it food? We see today, is it, is it for power? Is it for favor? Uh, is it to have this moral high ground to feel good about ourselves uh, so we, we can feel like we're, we're a little bit better? Is it, is it following Jesus as long as he supports our politics? Is it following Jesus for what we can get out of him? I think that's a real challenge of how to check our hearts and make sure we're opening up the right gift. Because the scary thing is when they couldn't get their condition any longer, they left. So many people left. I took that as a scary warning. Make sure we're opening up the right gift. And then finally, it's this, which I thought was really the, the most, um, for me, the most moving part of, of the passages was how can we collect manna daily? The one thing I never really thought about when, when looking at manna or looking at these stories like the Exodus, um, I never really thought deeply about this whole thing of how they had to collect it daily. Uh, it's kind of just something I read past. But the more I began to look at it uh, over these last few weeks, it was, wow, how can we, how can we collect manna daily? Because that's a, that's a powerful message. That's a powerful teaching. Israel had a daily reminder and not just like a message on a mirror. They had like a daily reminder. They had to go out and do 
that reminded them every day who God was and to trust him. They couldn't store it up. Where else could they go? They had to rely on him fully with their lives. I just think it's so different and harder. We have a lot of manna stored up. We have a lot of manna stored up in, in today's world. Like, we have a lot we can fall back onto. And so how can we tangibly remind ourselves to trust God? How can we collect manna daily? What can we do? There's options, I think, within the church. Some things that are some smaller steps, right? We have something like Advent Conspiracy that comes up every Christmas season. Uh, a chance for us to go into our manna reserves, right? And, and to, to give uncomfortably and, and to, to understand a little bit about that trusting feeling. We're still pushing this 100 tables uh, idea, of this, this idea of radical community, uh, of first going out to the people within us and, and, and feeling that, but also going out and, and getting together with people when it's uncomfortable or when it's hard or when it's not exactly our first choice and, it's, and it's, it supports us and it's easy for us. How can we daily collect manna? That's the real thing. I'm, I, it's like my take-home question I'm doing for myself is how can, I, how can I do this daily? How can I do something that reminds me to trust God in that kind of way? What can we do? See, in the, in, in, the, in the desert, this manna comes down from the sky, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. This points to the real gift. We're seeing the light a little bit more clearly now, but what can we do about that? How can we really join in? Perhaps your take-home question is this. How can you collect manna daily? What can you do to remind yourself to fully trust God, to rely on him. Peter said, where else can we go? How can we have that kind of faith? Would you pray with me? God, as we come before you in this Christmas season, and um, we look at the ways that you are revealing yourself uh, in places we may not have noticed, um, God, we, we pray that you challenge us. God, also, though, we, 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 we pray that you can push our faith, push my faith, um, in the sense that Peter is, where else can we go? Just to see a church and a community take that on, I think, would change this area so deeply. So God, do an incredible work here and do it uh, in us. We trust you, we love you, we praise you for being the one that gives to us uh, so generously. So we pray this in your name. Amen.